27. Exodus 27, we are still going through the design of the tabernacle. We come to the last two verses of the chapter this evening, and the subject of these two verses is the oil for the candlestick. And so we're going to look at Exodus chapter 27, verses 20 and 21. And thou shalt command the children of Israel that they bring the pure oil, olive, beaten from, for the light, to cause the lamp to burn always. In the tabernacle of the congregation without the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall order it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever unto their generations on the behalf of the children of Israel. Let's pray. And dear Lord, as we come to this brief text tonight, uh, we know, Lord, that there is tremendous truth that is connected to every word, every sentence, every phrase, every paragraph. Our desire, Lord, is to plumb the depths and to uh, draw in and to see where these things are connected, to, uh, Lord, pursue you in this study and to make some connections that you have drawn for us as the scriptures unfold. Father, let's pray and ask that you would help us to see this picture that is painted before us tonight and that it might remind us of the wonderful anointing of the Holy Spirit that we have in us as believers. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. The oil is the focus of the last two verses of this chapter. And it reminds us that God is very specific about the design, the construction, and the function of the tabernacle that is at the center of Hebrew life. As we think about this and, and we take this uh, passage of Scripture, two small verses that simply talk about the oil that is to go into the lamp that is to burn at night in the tabernacle. And uh, you may ask, well, do we need an entire sermon on that? And we may even ask, did, did God really have to specify that? Wouldn't any oil do that uh, would be flammable? But what I want you to notice as we enter into this text is that God has been specific about the materials that were to be used in the tabernacle. He's been specific about the dimensions. He has given the dimensions, the width, the length, the height uh, of the tabernacle, of the court, of the furniture that is in there. For each structure and each piece of furniture, God has been specific even down to the dimensions He's been specific about the materials that are to be used. And now he is specific about the oil that is to fuel the lampstand uh, for light in the tabernacle. God is specific about this sacred design because man cannot approach God on his own terms. And so let me hit you with a big theological truth just right up front. You say, why all this specificity? Why did God say it has to be this way and the door has to be here and it has to be set up and it has to be this approach and this altar comes first and then that uh, veil comes next? It is because man cannot approach to God on his own terms. We can only approach to God on the terms of God. And that is one big lesson for us to draw here. The Hebrews could not say, we worship Jehovah, so we are going to build a stone church, and we are going to make it this way, and we're going to design that, and we, we're going to give him our very best of everything, uh, but we're going to do it in our own terms. No, that is not how they were able to approach to God. 
It was on the terms of God. God said, this is how you will approach to me. And this is the only way that you can approach to me. As a matter of fact, as you think about the narrowness of the approach to God, it wasn't that this was just the only way that the Israelites could approach to God. It was the only way that anybody in the world could approach to God. And God had chosen this group of people to be uh, the trustees, if you will, of his truth. And if anyone wanted to approach to God, they had to come the same way. As a matter of fact, at this time in the camp of the Hebrews, there are some Egyptians who left Egypt with them. And they had to approach to God this same way. There was only one way to approach God, and it was on his terms. And he is so very specific about that. Uh, If you stay with me for a few years, we will get to the book of Leviticus And you will discover how very specific God is about the terms of worship for his people. I mean, he prescribes the very mixture of the oils, the herbs, and the things that are to be added to the sacrifice. He tells them what day they are to do it. He tells them how they are to do it. He tells them what is acceptable. He tells them what is not acceptable. If you don't get anything else from reading the book of Leviticus, what you find is that God is very detailed and specific about how his people are to approach to him. This is a tremendous foundation because there are a multitude of religions in the world. And the problem with every one of those religions is that they are trying to approach God on their own terms. This is how we think we should approach God. And granted, some of those are very lofty ideals. And some of those offer the very best that they have. And and some of those religions try to build the most extravagant, beautiful cathedrals that they could imagine all to God. But the problem is that they are not approaching the way that God said to approach. And so in this text, as we come to these closing verses and we discover that God even tells them what kind of oil to use in the lamp, we're reminded that God is specific about this sacred design because man cannot approach to God on his own terms. Furthermore, God is specific because this temporary tabernacle is not just intended for Israel's current means of approach. You see, while the tabernacle was the current means of approach for Israel, it was not the terminal means of approach. That is, God had future plans. He had a new covenant that was going to replace the old covenant because the old covenant was insufficient because it could not do what needed to be done to reconcile man to God once and for all. And so in the foresight of God, he knows that he will be sending his son in the flesh to be the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. And so everything in this first covenant is pointing them to the Messiah who is to come and so God is very specific about the design of this tabernacle the materials that are used the colors that are used the dimensions that are used because not only does it serve a purpose in this moment but it is a prophetic arrow that is pointing these people to the Messiah so that when he comes they recognize some similarities The oil then is also specifically designated because it serves as a type in Scripture. So why is it so specific? Well, if all of these things are typologies and they're pointing us towards the coming Messiah, 
then the oil too must be serving as a type. Bible teachers tend to agree that oil is used as a picture of the Holy Ghost in the Bible. And so you say, what type is oil? Fire is judgment, right? We think about that. White is righteousness. What is oil? Oil is often associated with the Holy Spirit. Uh, one of the reasons is because oil was used for anointing in the Old Testament. Think about it. In a couple of chapters, we're going to see that they anointed the high priest with oil. That's what set him apart. It was that anointing to that official office. And then later, we're going to find that when God would give them a king, that that position was also a position that was entered into by anointing. Samuel anoints Saul, and then he anoints David into the office of king. And then we discover that there's one more office that is entered by anointing, and that is the office of the prophet as Elijah anoints Elisha to be a prophet in his place. Did you know that the title Christ in the New Testament, it's the Greek Christos, it literally means anointed, anointed one or anointing? Why? Because Jesus is the prophet, the priest, and the king. He is the fulfillment, is he not? Is he not the great high priest that we are told about in Hebrews? Is he not the seed of David? Is he not that prophet who would come? He is the fulfillment of all of those. And so that anointing in the Old Testament was so very significant. And it wraps it all up in Christ who comes as the anointed one, who is the perfect high priest, who is the forever king, and who is the preeminent prophet. In addition to that, 1 John 2.27 states that believers have been anointed with the Holy Ghost. Now, uh, you may not be used to that anointing language. It's used a lot more in the charismatic churches and in some of the mountain churches that I came from. They say, he's got the anointing on him. He can preach, right? That, that, that's what they're. But in the Bible, that term is used, but it's not used saying that somebody's got a gift. It's actually used in reference to every believer who has the Holy Spirit. Listen to 1 John 2.27. It says, But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and you need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, you shall abide in him. And so in 1 John 2.27, this anointing is not a thing. It is a person. It says that you are abiding in him. He is abiding in you. The language that is used is almost exactly the same to what Jesus used when he talked about the Holy Spirit as the comforter who would teach you all truth, who would abide in you, and you would abide in him. Uh, previously in that text of 1 John 2, it says that we have an unction from the Holy One. That word unction is the same word as anointing. And so that's one of the reasons why in the scheme of Scripture it is believed that oil serves as a type of the Holy Ghost. And so looking at it from that angle, we can glean some insight into the similarity of the ministry of the oil in the tabernacle and the ministry of the Spirit in the life of the believer. 
three simple things for you tonight before we come to the Lord's table. Number one, the oil is pure. The oil is pure. In verse 20, it says that he was to command the children of Israel that they bring pure olive oil. The oil was to be pure olive oil, not mixed, not diluted, not contaminated. As we move on in Scripture, we're going to find that there were some other oils that were used for other purposes, and they were to be mixed. And some of them had some spices that were added into them to give them different scents and things like that. But in this use, it was to be pure oil. No mixture, no diluting, and no contamination. The Holy Spirit is pure God. He is not a form of God. He's not a derivative of God. He is not simply the power force of God. He's not an emanation of God. He is God himself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent. And so as we think about the Holy Spirit and the picture of the pure oil, we understand that the Holy Spirit is pure God. The Holy Spirit resides in the sinful body of a believer, yet he is not contaminated. He remains pure. That's a phenomenon, isn't it? We realize that when we got saved, our flesh didn't get saved. This, this old body's going to the ground. It's going to return back to the dust. When I got saved, when you got saved, your flesh did not get regenerated. That's why we have such a problem, isn't it? Because we have the, the regenerated soul that is saved living inside of this sinful body. And there's this constant tension that is back and forth between the flesh and the spirit. And this old body is not saved. It's going to go back to the ground. And yet, the Holy Spirit of God is able to move inside of this train wreck of sin and not be contaminated by it, not be diluted by it, but to remain pure, holy God within this earthen vessel. Doesn't the Bible say we have this treasure in earthen vessels? That's a neat saying. Let me explain the background on you. It comes from Corinthians when it is talking about the Holy Spirit abiding in us. But the context in which they used it was that in that day and time, they didn't have safes. They, they didn't have great lock boxes. And if you were just a, a common person and you weren't a king living in a castle, having a guard, but you had some valuables, you were at risk of somebody stealing from you. And so oftentimes they would take their most valuable possessions and hide them in the roughest rudimentary looking pots so that when if somebody came into their house looking to steal something, it wasn't obvious where the goods were. You see, because in those clay vessels, the Bible says there were some that were for honor and some that were dishonor. So some of them were garbage pots and some of them were display pots. As a matter of fact, some of them were bathroom pots. And so if you really wanted to throw the thief off, you put your goods in what looked like the potty pot. And that's what the scripture is saying when it says we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Hey, man, I may not look like much from the outside, but I've got the pure Holy Spirit of God 
dwelling inside of me and so do you. The Holy Spirit brings purity into the believer's life. Like the lamp was filled with pure oil, the believer is filled with the purity of the Spirit. We are impure before we get saved. We are totally depraved. We are sinful from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet. Romans 3 says that there is nothing good in us. Paul acknowledged that in me, that's in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. And yet, when we get saved, the purifying presence of the Holy Spirit comes into our life and regenerates us. And the Bible says things like this, to the pure all things are pure. And it says that this wisdom is first peaceable and pure and comes from the body. And as we think about that reality, we realize that though we may be contaminated by sin, there is this pure presence of the Holy Spirit that fills us that does something in us and through us that we could not do in and of ourselves. Which brings us to the second point. The oil is for light. The oil is for light. That's what the text tells us, that it's pure oil, olive, beaten for the light. The oil's purpose was to be ignited in order to give light. You know, that old candle stand, as beautiful as it was, as ornate as it was, as decorative as it was, had no illuminary power. In and of itself, it could give no light, but filled with oil, and the oil ignited, it then becomes the light source in the tabernacle. Proverbs 20, 27 says, The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. The Holy Spirit is described as a light, as this illuminator that dwells in the life of a believer. The Holy Spirit illuminates the believer so that the believer can then shine light in this dark world like the burning oil in the lamp illuminated the tabernacle. And so because we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we now have the ability to give light to others. It reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 14, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be here, neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine. Before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You want to know the problem with all of the humanitarian efforts that are taken that are divorced from the gospel of Jesus Christ. The problem is they give no light. They may give some temporary relief. They may be able to restore some earthly houses. They may be able to recover some temporary goods. But they leave the soul of men and women still in the path to hell. And that is why when we do disaster relief as Southern Baptists, we go in the name of Jesus Christ. And we do all the work and all the humanitarian efforts that we can do, but make no doubt about it, make no mistake about it. The purpose is so that we can shine the light. We don't want to just fix their earthly home. We want them to have a heavenly home. 
And so the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of us, like the oil in the lamp, is what gives us the ability to shine the light of the gospel to others. And so the oil is for light. And then lastly, the oil burns continually. Exodus 20, 27 says that it is to cause the lamp to burn always, always to burn. It was the job of the priest to tend to that lamp every evening and every morning. The lamp never went out by night in the dwelling of God. It was, it was attended to continually by the priest. Do you realize that having the Holy Spirit indwelling you is the only way to be saved? It's the only way to be saved. Romans 8 says that if we have not the Spirit of God, we are none of His. It goes on to say that it is the Spirit of God in us that causes us to cry out, Abba, Father, and that it is the Spirit that makes us heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And as I shared with you a couple of weeks ago on the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, once He takes up residence in our life, He never moves out. He is there continually. And so the wonderful, wonderful news for those who are believers in Christ is that we have this continuing witness in us. Jesus gave a parable. And, and to understand the parable, you have to understand the audience. Jesus was speaking to the Hebrews. Jesus is speaking before he goes to the cross. Jesus is speaking before the Holy Spirit has come into the world to indwell believers. And he is warning them. He is trying to call them to salvation. And in Matthew 25, he tells this parable about ten virgins who have lamps. And they are waiting for a bridegroom to come. And as the night grows dark, five of those women do not have oil in their lamps to continue burning. And they ask the other five, share with us. And they said, we can't. We, we only have enough for ourselves. You, you'll have to go find some for yourself. And Jesus says, while they were gone, the bridegroom came. And the five virgins who had oil in their lamps and their lamps were burning were welcomed in by the bridegroom. And then the five who did not came back. And when they knocked at the door and asked entrance, they were rejected. And the point that Jesus was making to his audience and the greater point that he's making to you and I is that we must have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling us if we hope to be saved, if we hope to gain entrance into heaven when the Lord comes back. And so the question is, do you have oil in your lamp? Is the pure oil of the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you, or do you have some synthetic religious oil, something that is a charade of the true? Is your light shining in the darkness? Is there a difference about you because you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you? The greatest question is this, will you be ready when the bridegroom comes? Will you be the one with oil in your lamp or will you be the one on the outside begging to come in? Tonight we're going to observe the Lord's Supper 
in celebration of the salvation that Christ has purchased for us. And the most important aspect, the most important thing that I can point you to tonight before we come uh, to this is to ask you, are you saved? Has there been a moment in your life when you realized that you were a sinner in need of a Savior? Was there a time in your life when you called out to Christ and asked Him to save you? Because, friends, if you've never trusted Christ, there is nothing in these elements that will save you or wash away your sins. They are memorials of what Jesus did at the cross. The most important aspect of what we do tonight is the introspection into our own hearts and answering the question, am I truly saved or not? At this time, I'm going to ask our deacons if they would come to the front to 